copyrighted program created by Rio Grande. Federal police calling all cars, attention all cars, all guests 191 regarding a holdup. The subject is male American, 24 years, 5 feet 8 or 9 inches, 145 pounds, dark hair and eyes, wore a gray overcoat and cap. This man is dangerous. That's all. So he's Never mind that. Give me what you got. What do you mean? Don't call me, fellow. Where's the money? 
in my pocket. All right, let's have it. Yes, sir. You saw your shot? Yes, sir. How much in that finger? Nothing in there. Okay, fell him down. All right, two bells. Did I get on by the no, no, I've been held up. At 11.23 on the night of March 25th, Safety Operator R.A. Fuller noticed a passenger waiting for his car to stop at Fortius and McKinley. He pulled his car to a stop, opened the door, waited while his passenger boarded the car. As was his custom, he watched his passenger's feet and legs to see that he was safely settled, then started his car. He looked around to see if a fare had been deposited in the fare box. Just keep looking ahead, buddy, and you won't get hurt. Look at me again, and I'll shoot you dead. Well, what do you want? This is a stick-up. A little object resting on your fare box is a gun. Ever see one? Yeah. Okay, pal. Hand over what you got. You won't get very much. This has been a kind of a poor room. Well, you got paid today, didn't you? Yeah, but I don't carry that around with me. Okay, give me what you have. Well, here's two and here's what's in the changer. That makes about $15. Dollars. All right. Let me off at the next stop. Keep buttoned up, pal, and you won't get hurt. And don't look around. Don't worry, I won't. Five days later, shortly before 2 o'clock in the morning, officers James Costello and Elmer I hear the boys down at Georgia are a little worried about that streetcar hold up last week. Yeah. Can't seem to get a line on that bird. Hanson furnished a pretty good description last December. Huh? Yeah, got a good one from Fuller. The man he held up on the 25th. Anybody see his face in either job? No. Fuller's got a fair look. Everybody identified the overcoat and cap, though. Well, if he's still in Los Angeles, we'll find him, all right. Oh, he's probably in Timbuktu by this time, yeah. <laughs> hey, take a little floor, Elmer. There's a mug sitting in an automobile. Don't look so good at this time of night. Turn around, Elmer. I'm going to ask this boy some questions. Okay, Jim. Take it easy now. You never can tell about these muscles. He's probably waiting for that trap story joint to close. That's what's the idea, Buck. Waiting for somebody? What's it to you? Uh, nothing special. Just thought this is a peculiar time to be sitting in a car in a public street like this. Anything wrong in that? Well, it all depends. Suppose you get out and let's take a look at you. I've been sort of looking for a gray coat and cap like that. Okay, cop. Now get this, Fritz. Get back in that baby carriage there and feed it. Get me? Make it fast. I ain't fooling. Okay, bud. You don't have to poke that gun through me, you know. Go on. Shut off. You'll have to move over, Elmer. He's got the drop on me. What's up, Jim? The smoke has got a gun on me, Elmer. Move over. Lean back, Jim. Let me get a shot at him. Why, you? Elmer. I'm 
get out of the car, and at the same time assist his brother officer, Hoffman was unable to get a good shot at the fleeing bandit or to obtain a glimpse of his license. There followed hours of feverish activity on the part of the police. Additional officers were added to details, checking parking lots, garages, out-of-the-way storage lots, searching for the bandit's car. Next day, in the office of the detective Edwards, police officers on duty and off met for a conference. Fellas, we've got to find this bird that shot Jim Costello. Now, we know he lives somewhere around that district. And here's my suggestion. Let's map out that section and block. Let's all take a section and canvas it in plain clothes. We'll tell those mugs that run some of those places that if we don't find out within 12 hours who killed Costello, we'll really mess up that district. How's about it? Okay, sir. <laughs> Goodbye, Mamie. Oh. Homicide. 
Miller was taken off his car at 7 in spring, and without a word being spoken to him, was taken to the Georgia Street Station. Captain Edwards and Lieutenant Scarlett began questioning him. We want to know where he took Glenn Rogers. I don't know where he Glenn Rogers. Now, don't try to hand us that. We happen to know that you got a call from Rogers, and that you went to his house at 2 o'clock this morning and helped him move. Now, where'd you take him? I didn't help him move. Dorothy. Who was Dorothy? That's his girlfriend. Uh, so you do know Rogers? Well, yeah, I know him. A little. Where is he now? Sending a business. Oh, is that so? Now, listen, Mud. Anytime a guy kills a copper, it's a whole lot of my business, see? Now, you come across. I ain't telling you nothing. Why, you... Take it easy, Jim. Let me talk to this bird. Now, listen, Kroger. You're in a spot. You're guilty of compounding a felony in that you're helping conceal a felon. And you're guilty of helping him escape. Now, there are two sides to this thing, the right one and the wrong one. You're on the wrong side, Grover, and I'm giving you just five minutes to get right. That is, unless you want me to lock you up now. Uh, wait a minute. Got me wrong. I'll tell you all about it. All right, that's more like it. Get started. Well, Rogers called me early this morning. I went over to his place as ain't and secret. He told me he shot a copper. Another copper shot him. He said he did it because he didn't want to be caught with a gun on him. Yeah, pretty weak excuse for killing a man. Yeah, that's what I told him, but he said that was his affair. He asked me to call Dorothy, that's his girlfriend, and I did. When they went out to her house, all I did was help him pack a little black handbag with some personal stuff. Like shirts and things like that. Where did they go? I don't know the address, but I can show you. All right, come on and do it. Jim, get that up. Let's drive Kroger over to the place he says Rogers is hiding. Where is this place, Kroger? He's out in Huntington Park. Well, that's the house over there, the yellow okay. one. Now, you stay here. Derek, you take that side window on the right. Okay, Captain. Derek, you take the back door. I'll go in the front way. Keep your eyes open. Just open it up. We're looking for Glenn Rogers. Yes, Never mind, I see him. All right, Rogers, pick him up. Come on in, Jim. What'd you do with the gun, Rogers? I threw it away. But Rogers had not thrown the gun away. After hours of questioning, he finally admitted that he had hidden the gun used to shoot Officer James Costello on the night of March 30th. He was held to answer on a charge of murder and brought to trial in Department 25 at the court of Judge Charles W. Fricky. Months dragged by. And at last, the verdict of the jury is ready. A clerk will read the verdict. Case of the people of the state of California versus Glenn Rogers, defendant. We, the jury, find the defendant in the above entitled action not guilty. Order, order, order in the court. This is no laughing matter. The jury is discharged. Judge Tricky, I'm from the press. What do you think of the decision? In all my years on the bench, in all my experience as a lawyer and judge, this is the most incomprehensible verdict that has ever come to my notice. It is utterly unbelievable that any group of men and women could be so swayed by the words of witnesses and attorneys, so spellbound and hypnotized by the mass mind as to permit themselves to render such a verdict as this. It is not in the power of the people to appeal this case. So nothing remains but to abide by the verdict as returned by the jury.
office of Captain of Detective Edwards, we find Edwards in conference with officers Garrett, Garrett, O'Connor, and Fred Wessel. Well, boys, there you are. None of us had the faintest idea that Rogers would beat that murder rap. What's the next move, Captain? Well, the DA's got a hold on him for those two robbers, and there's a charge of possession of a theft hanging over him. Now, I want you, Wessel, and you, O'Connor, to get busy and hang those robbers on that bird. And I don't want any slip-ups. Sarek, you and Sarek stay on this. And see that we get enough evidence to make these charges stick. Okay, see. Who's going to represent us on the case? Cliff Crail. You'll work with him in preparing the case. We want those witnesses who were at the murder trial, but who didn't get a chance to testify. We're going to make this case airtight. Rogers was again brought to trial, first on a charge of possessing a sack or blackjack. Conviction followed on this charge in spite of the testimony of witnesses. Then began the robbery trial. For the March 25th crime, Rogers prepared a puncture-proof alibi. Witness after witness testified to seeing him that night. And also on the night of December 7th, 1929, the date of the first streetcar holdup. Finally, on September 11th, the defense called its last alibi witness, Rosamond O'Keefe. Miss O'Keefe, do you know the defendant? I will met him. Uh, calling your attention to the night of December 7th, did you have occasion to see the defendant that night? Yes, I did. Uh, where did you see him? At the Casual Country Club. I danced with him. Mm, what time was that? Mm, it must have been shortly after nine. I got there just a little before nine. They were dancing then. Uh, what time did you leave? After twelve. You say the defendant came in a little after nine? Yes. And remain that steadily till you went home? Yes. Your witness, Mr. Crail. You, uh, did not go to this dance with the defendant, did you? No. You just met the defendant that night, did you? No. I had met him once before. When? About two years ago. Where? At Miss Kilmore's house. The girl who testified just before you did? Yes. Can you fix the time of this meeting? No. The day? No. The week? No. The month? No. Are you sure you did meet him? No. I mean, yes. Make up your mind. Yes. But you did see the defendant on the night of December the 7th. Yes. Well, now, how do you fix the time so definitely if you cannot remember other dates? When it was called to my attention, I looked it up. Hmm. I had my date yet. My date to the dance. Who called it to your attention? Miss Seymour. Does that uh, bid say the date of the dance? Yes, it does. Did you bring it with you? No. I left it at home. Uh-huh. Is this the only dance you ever attended at which the defendant was present? Yes. Are you positive of that? Yes. Your Honor, I request that this girl be sent home with an officer. It should be ordered to bring through the court this bid of which he speaks. Has counsel any objection? Tell Your Honor that it is so ordered. Rosamond O'Keefe was taken to her home. What happened when her Irish mother discovered what was taking place still brings smiles to the faces of the investigating officers. A much chastened Rosamond returned to the afternoon session of court. Direct examination was begun by Deputy District Attorney Clifford Crail. Miss O'Keefe, you testified this morning that you attended a dance at the Cosmo Country Club on the night of December the 7th, 1929. Yes. And that during the evening you saw the defendant, Rogers, and you danced with him. Yes. That was substantially your testimony. Yes. Now, was that testimony true? 
or false? It is false. What was your answer? It is false. It is false. Miss O'Keefe, I'm asking you whether or not last Monday you talked to Evelyn Kilmore over the telephone that during that conversation that she said to you substantially that you were going to be uh, called as a witness in this case, that you would testify that you had danced with Glenn Rogers at the Cosmo Country Club on the night of December the 7th, 1929. Yes, that is right. She told you that? Yes. Mrs. Honor, please, for the purpose of the record, at this time, I'd like to stipulate that as far as counsel for defense is concerned, he had nothing to do with putting on what is apparent as perjured testimony. And my investigation completely exonerates him from having anything to do with it. That's the record, so sure. In spite of alibis presented by the defense, Glenn Rogers was found guilty of robbery in the first degree. Have you ever seen a long freight train toiling up a mountain grade? Figure for yourself the power required, the lubricant, that must be used to overcome the tremendous friction. It is significant that 52 of the great railway systems of this country depend on Sinclair motor oil to fight friction and wear in their equipment. That fact is as fine an endorsement as any product could have. But that is not all. Add to that the preference of 150 airlines, airplane manufacturers, and flying teams. Everyone knows how vital lubrication is in the business of flying. In addition, millions of motorists in 45 countries say Sinclair in dozens of different languages to express their choice of motor oil. Bear in mind that the motor oil you put in your car is the one thing that prevents moving metal parts from coming together. The one thing most important in safeguarding your motor industry. Make that oil the best you can buy. Sinclair. Sinclair Opaline is only 25 cents a quart of your Rio Grande dealer. It's the qualified companion product of Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline. You should get them both at your Rio Grande dealers tomorrow. And now again, we hear Keith Davis. Through circumstances over which the police department had no control, Glenn Rogers was never punished for the cold-blooded shooting of a police officer. He was sentenced, however, to consecutive terms five years to life, and seven years to life on charges of robbery. Efforts are now being made to free this man and again enable him to prey upon society.
bidding you good night for Rio Grande. <laughs>